0: Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains podcast with me, Chris. Today, we interview John Gupta, who is an incredible individual. He's got over a decade's worth of experience climbing mountains as part of his passion and career. But I give him such a big intro at the beginning of the phone call. I tried to condense over a decade into two small paragraphs. I give it my best shot. But I really hope you enjoy the podcast. We talk about him climbing Everest We talk about him doing the Seven Summit World Challenge, the Yukon Ultra Race. We talk about different mentalities from fear, positive mindsets to limitations. I really hope you take something away from this, but with no further hesitation, let's just get straight into it. So hello, John. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing?
1: Uh, You're very welcome. Thanks for asking. Uh, I'm really well, thanks. Yeah, up in sunny North Wales at the moment. It's glorious.
0: Yes, yeah. Although I think you mentioned you're in sight of Snowden, which is a bit tantalisingly close, given the scenario we're in at the moment.
1: Yeah, I can. I'm very fortunate. I can see Snowden from my bedroom window, actually, uh, <laughs>
0: and,
1: and it does look spectacular at the moment uh, and very quiet. Yeah, there's nobody yeah. on it. But.
0: Yeah. So, so if uh, if you're listening to this in the future, uh, firstly, how is it? But also, at time of recording, uh, we are in the coronavirus lockdown. Uh, hence the, the Skype call, otherwise it'd be awesome to do some sort of innovative interview while climbing Snowden or something
1: <laughs> That would be cool Yeah, yeah. I've got walk, Vertigo, you across. can take me up
0: with crib cock. <laughs> and just be perfect. Like, <laughs> Um Perfect, so for those of you who don't know uh, John's career has seen him swimming with turtles off the coast of Odisha in India competing in the 430 Yukon Arctic Ultra to summiting the tallest mountains on the planet John is a montane athlete, member of the Alpine Club, ambassador to the Youth Adventure Trust, and a member of both the Mountain Training Association and the Association of Mountaineering Instructors. His career season running his own mountain expedition company, aptly called Mountain Expeditions, facilitating and taking part in the Seven Summits world record, climbing mountains incredibly quickly, traveling from continent to continent, summiting Everest three times giving his time to host and run altitude and skill seminars and still finds the time to escape to places like Chamonix and Scotland for some me time. So thank you very much. And hopefully for the best part, that covers 12 years.
1: That sounds great. Yeah.
0: I mean, you've got <laughs> eight plus expeditions, so it's hard to <laughs> shove that into an intro, I suppose. But yeah. No, that
1: was very, very kind. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people ask how, how you can fit so much into short period of time uh, and the answer is I don't really do anything else um (laughs) other other than uh do a lot of mountaineering a lot of climbing and go on sort of a lot of expeditions yeah yeah. Uh, and of course there, there have to be sacrifices along the way but um up until this enforced uh spell that we're currently in um yeah it's been pretty non-stop
0: yeah and it's um yeah, it, it's it's interesting. The phrase I would think of is is lucky. But then whenever I think of someone being lucky, I always think <clears> of that quote that says, "It's funny. The harder I work, the luckier I get." So, um,
1: I, I think
0: mean, it's just of someone like you.
1: You've just hit a subject which I find really interesting, and we could probably do a podcast just on this. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm quite well known for as soon as somebody says uh, you're lucky, I have to really. <sighs> Like, restrain myself. Yeah. Um, not necessarily um, about myself or in any context when someone refers to somebody as lucky. Like, for example, you could say, oh, you're so lucky you live in North Wales. And I'd say, and I'd say well, I'm not because it was a choice. You know, I, I, I wasn't like in Bristol where I grew up and somebody came over and said, you've randomly been chosen to have a house in <laughs> Wales. <clears throat> and you've been randomly chosen to have a career as a mountaineering instructor. Here you go. Like it doesn't happen. Like, no. it, I've, I agree that I'm very fortunate to live in such a beautiful place, but um, it's certainly not luck. It's it uh, inten- and determination. It, in- intended. Yeah, it's intended.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So uh, the first question I've got for you is uh, you began your passion <clears throat> and I'd say from the research career in the jungle of Belize. For you, how yeah. does gridding out in a sweaty jungle where everything is designed to kill you compare with battling the opposite extreme on your way to a summit?
1: What a fabulous question to start with. <laughs> yeah you're, you're right, all of this um, this out passion for the outdoors and what is now mostly mountaineering climbing started from this first trip I did in Belize in 2005 uh, and I guess they they do marry together really well, the sort of sweaty jungle and, and the cold crisp high altitude world because there 's a a lot of elements that are the same you know the 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 physical challenge the the leadership the the mental challenge of of being in these environments, and the skill sets you need in order to perform and survive and go into them and enjoy them get the most of it and then return you know a lot a lot of it correlates really well obviously um spending prolonged periods of time in a sweaty uh environment like the jungle where there are a lot of things that want to bite you or try and sort of live under your skin and that sort of thing
2: (laughs) is is really
1: really challenging but you know equally is spending extended periods of time at high altitude They are very different, but I think a lot of the skills um, transcend quite nicely across the two of them.
0: Perfect. So when you were running your first expedition to Kilimanjaro and facilitating the Pretty Nails National Three Peaks Challenge in the UK, did you ever imagine that you would go on to achieve what you have?
1: Uh, No, no, absolutely not. I I remember that time really well, actually, very fondly. I just started freelancing in the outdoors for a few UK companies as a mountain leader which is like the entry qualification to working within the outdoors <clears throat> and I was um, working for a, a big company down in the south east of England with school groups um, through, through the summer so we'd have the kids in for five days uh, and do all sorts of multi-activities with them and I'd be sitting around in the evenings once all the kids have, you know, gone off and the teachers looking up and whatever, with other instructors of um, varying ages and qualifications. And I was obviously very, very junior at this time. Uh, I sort of sat around the fire. There were people there in their 40s and 50s who had seemingly accomplished everything that I could have ever dreamed of wanting to do. Um, Yeah, and I remember listening to them telling stories about being in the Himalayas or going to the Andes or whatever, just thinking, wow, like, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, And yeah, and and now here we are. Well, it would have been only six years from that point when I first had the opportunity to go to Everest. Um, uh, And yeah, I guess now looking back, that that might be me sitting on the other side of the fire now, Mm. um, being uh, being able to... Mm fire or you know share some stories to a new generation coming through
0: yeah i because I, I, I didn't know if it was because clearly as we've already established there's grit and determination i but i didn't know if you were going to go you know what i did <laughs> i was going to create this company i was going to climb over us um or if, it, if it's just a case of passion hard work and then just things keep falling in front of you and you just take them
1: yeah I mean, a, a bit of both like the company was kind of an accident um it was like there was no sort of sit down draw up a huge business plan you know and implement it's been very much sort of a bit of trial and error i suppose but just going with it as as it evolved it was it was never pushed it just evolved gradually um and i i didn't sit there like in those early years thinking that i'm gonna do all of that because when you're 1920 and someone's Talking about climbing Himalayan peaks that are thousands and thousands of pounds, you know, and the big ones are sort of tens of thousands. It's just not a realistic concept to think, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You might you might end up being called sort of naive or arrogant if you're younger saying that anyway. So, if you did have those thoughts, probably best to keep it to yourself and just crack on anyway.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think it's great to be aspirational, and I, yeah. I think it's very healthy to have uh, dreams and goals that seemingly out of reach and then put you know that's exactly how I've achieved some of the things I've done is to then look sort of from the end backwards and work out the stepping stones required in order to to get wherever it is you think you might want to get to and more often than not along that journey what it was you were aiming towards is no longer of interest or you've changed your mind And you end up going off on a tangent. And that's totally cool.
0: Perfect. So as we've already established, at time of recording, most of the world is in lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic. And this got me thinking the other day, actually. So you've got the mountains to yourself and you've got transport to take you to three of them. Where are you going and why? Wow. And bearing in mind with the Himalayas, you haven't just rocked up, done Everest, thought about K2 and left like you've you know you, you've you rocked up and done a lot of peaks in the in many different
1: areas I have but I have also done a lot of repeats so there is a I mean I've barely scratched the surface of what is possible in the Himalayas so so three places that I'd go to go climbing today right well the first one would be Pakistan because I've never been and it just looks unbelievable. Like it looks like the Himalayas, or well, the the Nepalese sort of aspect of the Himalayas on steroids. Um, and I, I was actually planning to go this year, but we postponed it in January, February, actually, just before the whole Corona thing sort of kicked off properly for us. Um, but I'm desperate to go. So we were looking at sort of G1, G2, a couple of the eight thousands in the Karakoram. But I'd be lying if I said. I I didn't have some interest in at least going to see K2 and and having a look at what what all the fuss is about. And, you know, like um, when I got the opportunity to climb Denali in winter and we were the only team on the mountain, that would be really special. So if it were tomorrow and I could take a couple of select climbing buddies, then I might, yeah, could potentially go to K2. So that would be the big one. I'd then choose somewhere that I knew very little about that looks absolutely stunning, like somewhere perhaps like Ethiopia or, yes, somewhere like that where I'm aware that there's mountain ranges and it would be culturally very, very different um, and it's somewhere I don't really know much about. And then the third would be to go, using this beautiful weather that we have at the moment, I would go to Scotland, to the remote Northwest, which I think is easily one of the most beautiful places in the whole of the world. Um, And I would, again, with good people and good weather, I'd go cragging somewhere up in the Northwest, super isolated. Uh, I'd just have a really sort of simple, beautiful day rock climbing.
0: That sounds awesome. And it's really nice to see your love of the UK come back on a question as well. Oh, Almost go full circle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially Scotland in winter. You do have to earn the good days and you have to put in the effort in a lot of minging horrible conditions. But when you do get the bluebird beautiful neve conditions, it is like nowhere else ever. Yeah. Just perfect. Perfect. Yeah.
0: So hiking and mountain climbing can be beautiful and serene, as we've literally just said, (laughs) but it can also push fear, physical and mental limits at times. What sort of techniques or thoughts do you have to keep that positive mindset when things do start to take a little bit of its turn?
1: This is a really, really good topic. That um, I think the more and more I do and the more I think about how to get better and be good in, in the high mountains, um, the sort of mental strength and mental tenacity side of it, it is becoming more and more relevant and I think about it all the time so I've got this phrase that I have which I share with all my clients which is called be bothered and it basically means that at any point you know like oh, literally anything where, where you just think "Oh, I can't be bothered to do it right now you just have to have this really annoying little creature on your shoulder that just says, be bothered, be bothered, be bothered. And then you end up doing everything sort of straight away. Um, And it links in really nicely to another one of my favorite sort of phrases, which is sort of short term loss, long term gain. So my, my favorite example of this is when you're in a tent at altitude and you wake up in the night and you need a wee and you instantly think, no, I can't be bothered. I'm in my sleeping bag. It's nice and warm. It's quite cold outside. I'm just gonna lie here, uh, you know, I can't be bothered. <clears throat> the reality is you then lie there for hours awake. You can't go to sleep because you need a wee. And then eventually, inevitably, you will get up and you will go for a wee. And then you get back in your sleeping bag and you fall asleep in seconds. Now, if you just wake up and go, right, be bothered, go, like straight away, you get up, go for a wee, come back and you're back asleep and it doesn't disturb anything so that phrase of being bothered uh is almost annoying now like i walk around the house and like i'll go and put um a bit of rubbish in the bin <clears throat> and the bin will be full and you know you might just think oh I'll just leave it i can't bother to do it right now you know i could probably squeeze a few more bits in there but now i can't do that anymore <laughs> i'm mean, just like ah oh, they're stop whatever i was doing just like quickly put that there turn the bin off walk outside, down the drive, put it in the bin, come back, and then I can just carry on with life. Because if I don't, it will just be bugging me. But translate that into a much more serious environment, and it really plays dividends, really does. Like, you arrive into a camp at 7,000 metres, you're a little bit jaded, you're a little bit goosed. What you really need to do is to get the stove on straight away, start melting some snow, start rehydrating, and while the stove is on, you're being, you don't just sit down and just sort of slump, you, you know, you get your kit out, get your thermo open, your sleeping bag, get that lofting up, sort your kit out, and then within five minutes, it's all done. And you can then sit down with a brew and you're, you're done for the day. Whereas if you don't, then it just drags on and then the temperatures start to descend in the night and then it gets dark. And when it's dark, everything's three times as hard. And, da-da-da-da-da. you know, being bothered is... Such an amazing, um, simple phrase that makes a big difference. And with training that, um, I find that any, whenever I'm out doing physical exercise, whether I'm at the moment currently on my road bike a bit or out for a run, I'll set myself a, you know, I'm going to go and run around the lake or something. And obviously there'll be a point where my legs hurt or I want to stop or you know, there's a hill coming up, so I'll walk it or something. But I, I don't. You just say, like, just be bothered and slow it down a bit or just see if you can get to the top, be bothered. And then when it gets really hard, I actually say to myself out loud, do not give up. Because then if you've told yourself, you know, you know like, if you, um, once you've told somebody you're going to do something, you kind of have to do it. Yeah, there's
0: actually scientific studies to say that you're more likely to do it as well.
1: Yeah. So yeah. even, even though there's nobody with me, and no one can hear it, I've still said it, which means it's public. Yes. <laughs>
2: so
1: the other day I was cycling up the pass, and it, I hadn't been on my bike for a while, and it was really hard, and I was trying to push a bit, and I was like, God, there's no way I'm gonna make it right to the pass without having to stop. And then I just said out loud, like, do not give up, basically, do not stop. I said, right, I'll, I'll make it to that post. So I just slowed it down a bit, I was like, come on, be bothered, got to the post, got to the next post got to the, and then made it to the top and that's all mental tenacity and strength and you can train it every day and then when you translate that into these expeditions and into these big climbs nothing seems to be a problem everything is just like oh yeah yeah i'll just do that now yeah like you're melting snow for water and you run out of snow The easy thing would be to be like, oh, you know, it looks like we've got enough water between us for a few hours. I'll just turn the stove off and, you know, we'll do some later. Or you could get dressed or, you know, put your shoes back on, get that empty bag, go outside, fill it full of snow and then come all the way back to your tent, get back in your sleeping bag and then carry on. And then all your water is full and it's all done.
0: It's better to do it when you've got that momentum anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just about keeping the momentum going um it's really powerful and it makes such these little things make such a huge difference
0: perfect perfect I like that that's a really good phrase be bothered
1: yeah it's so simple but and it's so annoying because um, (laughs) you because it's you know it's alliteration and it's really quick and snappy it's like be bothered be bothered you can't get rid of it
0: yep I like that if you don't mind, I'm going to start incorporating that into, into my daily routine. Because I'm already trying to be a bit more disciplined. Because like, the thing is, Barack Obama is, uh, in an interview on one of the videos I've seen, he compares uh, most of the things that you need to know in life, you can read in a Dr. Seuss book. So actually, that analogy that you gave of needing the loo on top of a mountain, or just filling up the bin, that goes forwards onto really important things you've got to be bothered if you can't you can't empty the bin because it's full how the hell are you gonna climb a mountain efficiently and keep your admin in gear
1: so yeah i like all about good it's all about good admin or or personal admin which i've shortened which any of my clients that have been on my trips will know about which i call padmin uh so personal (laughs) admin it's all about padmin uh yeah and I often award uh, the opposite of padmin would be bad admin which gets which is called badmin <laughs>
2: uh
1: and as a sort of very jovial sort of joke on my expeditions we award badmin points so if, some, <laughs> if somebody like walks off and leaves their trekking poles at the hut that we were in or you know whatever then they have to go back and get them obviously but that's a badmin point for. You know, what? Yeah, there's so many reasons that people can get awarded admin <laughs> points, but it's all done in in good taste, uh, and all it does is, you know, keep encouraging people to have really simple and and efficient personal admin, so that when you get to a much more serious environment, it's kind of second nature. It's you're used to doing it.
0: That's uh, a it's quite an interesting point actually, because I've. I did public services at college and I was taught by ex-military guys and it was awesome it was the only course in the building that was ex-military teaching you uh, as Uh opposed to you know psychology you can have a really smart psychologist teaching you and they were fantastic and I remember they would do similar things as long as you were highlighting a negative in a jovial way and you all trust each other as a team it actually starts to eliminate the negative behaviour and I, I remember as well, we were kayaking or canoeing, canoeing, and that's it, uh, down the Ross <laughs> um, and And you had this one or, one or two people in the group just going, Oh, when are we having a break? And they just kept yeah. going, Right, okay, you see the corner at the end. And, then, and you know, I think you know exactly what I'm about to say. You see the corner at the end, and like, Yeah. And you go, It's just around that bend. And they like, Right, okay. So you're carrying canoeing, you get around the bend. And it's just <laughs> another length <laughs> with no banks to stop at. And that happened maybe. 12 15 times before we actually had our break so yep. yeah that's that's yeah i thought of it when you were sort of saying just get to that post just get to that post
1: uh so you have to be kept that doesn't work so well with adults because uh with children you can you can play that game a little bit you can stress <laughs> the truth a little bit but with adults if, if i if I do that on a mountaineering trip, then they'll lose faith and trust in my judgment yeah. very quickly. So I can say, yeah, it, you know, you see that rock at the top, you know, it's, it is just beyond there. But what we're going to do is we're going to do 45 minutes and that's that. And, and if we're at camp in 45 minutes, then great. If we're not, then we'll take a short break at 45 minutes. Yeah. So like I try and in the big mountains, we use time as a structure. So they're like, oh, is it time for a break? Yeah, I'm like, no, like, <laughs> You've got your own watch. You can set your own watch. You know that we, you know, we're going to have a break then, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, l- I'd love it if I could just keep, yeah, just like, <laughs> lying to my clients. All the time. But um, I think I, it works
0: with someone who has that mentality anyway. I suppose it would be a fair sort of addition to that because with me, like, I'd be able to read through the lines, but I'd be like, okay, I see what you're doing. Let's get let's get around that bend. <laughs> so, yeah. So. With that in mind, I'm fascinated by your participation in the Yukon Ultra race. For someone who's usually found climbing mountains, what were your drives for taking part? And if you can as well, just for anyone who doesn't know, just briefly explain what that race is.
1: The Yukon Arctic Ultra is an amazing race up in the Yukon Territory of Canada. Uh, It's been going for quite a while now. And there's a number of categories you can enter from a marathon distance to 100 miles to 300 miles and 430, which they do every other year. Um, I was I was simply um, chatting to the guys at Montaigne who I, I, I work with um, from time to time, and it's one of the races that they support and sponsor they only support a very few specific races that are really hard and the Yukon Ultra is dubbed as the world's hardest and coldest ultra so that's a pretty good tagline so I thought (laughs) you know retrospectively I was incredibly naive very naive but I thought you know how hard can it be given some of the things that I've done (laughs) so I didn't train very much at all um i kind of cobbled together the kit required and turned up and in my gross naivety was even considering like where i might finish in the field (laughs) um i'd be delighted to know that i got completely shut down um i went out of starting blocks at 100 miles an hour which is not what you do for a 430 mile race uh and although i happened to be in sort of second place i think after about 50 miles there was good reason for that because anybody that finished the race was miles behind me employing very good tactics to see them through the whole race, not to sprint off the start. So, yeah, 132 miles, I pulled the pin and, and pulled out of the race because I was just physically broken. I had been, like developing quite structural injuries in my lower legs and ankles and I didn't want to make them irreversible. Mm. Um, so I came home feeling well and truly, sort of. Uh, th- well, was super disappointed in myself. Um, <laughs> I was a bit pooped, but I was just really disappointed in myself for being so naive, and underestimating the world's hardest and coldest ultra race. So I thought, right, well, that'll teach you, John. And if you can't take lessons from this, then you know that that would be a real shame. So you know i I spent a lot of time thinking about it and uh, evaluating the performance and what happened before and during, so I went back two days two years later with a friend called Tom um, and we entered as a team and we were much better prepared um both physically and with all our kit and our food and tactics as well i I'd, I'd spent a bit more time talking to people who'd done it and you know really. Respecting the race, um, yes, yeah, a 430 miles. It's self-sufficient, so you pull a sledge with you. Uh, and my sledge was called Betty,
2: um,
1: <laughs> and you have a really strong love-hate relationship with this thing because you have to have it because it has all of your belongings, your food, your stove, your sleeping system, everything to survive for for 12 days. It took us. Um, It was just the most amazing thing. It's like it's easily in my top three things I've ever had the opportunity to do. And it's really, really hard. So both both Tom and I were totally ready to throw the towel in after about four days, both a bit broken. Um, But we, you know, four days, what
0: mile are we on? Day four,
1: probably about a hundred and. Yeah, about 140 miles,
0: 150 miles. So a quarter of the way through, geez.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then people find it really useful to leave little markers in the snow. Like you draw them in with your walking pole saying like 150 miles that way, like the way you've come and only like 300 miles this way. And you're like, that's not helping. Like, how? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, roughly every it changes for each checkpoint but somewhere around 40 50 miles there's a checkpoint and most of them are very basic uh you you kind of stay outside you know if you've got a little tent or whatever you can set it up and then you can pop in and they'll do a quick medical check on your sort of fingers and toes give you the opportunity to fill up some water and maybe a bit of food as well and then you're off out on your own so i mean it was it's equally the most horrific and the worst thing I've ever put myself through. But, but that, as, as so often happens, that marries so closely to one of the most beautiful and amazing things that I've ever asked my body to, to do. It was, it was just amazing. Uh, and I th- yeah, about day seven, we came into the last cutoff checkpoint at a place called CarMax and we were both, totally spent and at this checkpoint you're allowed inside you can bring all your kit inside it's like an old um kind of leisurey center type thing in this little village in the middle of nowhere and we had a quick shower and a bit of food and because we'd reached a cutoff point you can have a proper sleep so most nights we're sleeping out in minus 40 minus 30 minus 40 sometimes even lower minus 44 we had one night just on the side of the trail for a couple of hours you know You're doing 16, 18 hours on the go, and then you'll lie down, have a few hours, three hours, four hours max, and then pack it up quickly, and and off you go. And you just can't stand around and stop and sort of attend to yourself like you might if you're just walking in the hills here, because it's so cold. Mm. You know, you kind of have to keep moving. You know, you wake up in the morning, your muscles will be a bit stiff, and it's it cold, like minus 40 you've got everything on you're still cold you strap into your sled which you are now cursing at because it gets heavier every day somehow although it doesn't.
2: <laughs>
1: and then you start marching off down the trail trying to warm up and, and then eventually it gets better but yeah your your energy levels your mood swings your mental strength ebbs and flows with such proportions it's it's really difficult to explain but um at the end of it all there was it it all kind of came good and you know by the time we got towards the last 100 miles all the kind of aches and pains had just become part of us and our systems were super slick and we'd heard that almost like 70% of the race had, had dropped out the attrition rate is huge on this race nice. huge and there was only about there's uh, oh, there's about 100 folk that started the race and they were down to about 20 or something. And, and we couldn't believe, you know, we were still going. And there's these times when you're crossing some of the expansive lakes that are 12 kilometres long and four or five kilometres wide and you're stood in the middle of them. And in the daytime, you can't see the edges in the sides. So it feels like you're just stood in the middle of the ocean. It's a remarkable feeling. And then at night time, it's just all black with uh incredible incredible skies most nights including on special nights the northern lights of course no really yeah yeah so there'd be enough light once you're out the forests and you're onto open terrain like the lakes you could turn your head torch off give your eyes a moment to adjust and then you're usually in a pretty straight line and there's markers every every so often to guide the way and those sort of three hours, you know, might take to cross a single lake, in a, you know, blasting as fast as you can, but all the time desperately trying to sort of look up and yeah. um, soak in, you know, the, the Northern Lights that are dancing across the sky in front of you in this sort of private, uh, exclusive little show just for you, well, just for me and my friend Tom. I mean, it was so special. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've never... I've never since, and I've never had before, and I hope I never will um, push myself that far. Like by the time we got to the end, I, you know, reflecting on it, um, I, I pushed myself as far as I'd ever done before, and and way past that, and and past that again, and past that again to to a place that I didn't even know a existed or b that I could even get to it. I was, you know, in autopilot with no other option but to to try and carry on. We finished the the race in like 15th or 16th, and it was after about day one. It's not about winning the race for 99% of the people there. I mean, we are so proud to finish the race. And actually, we didn't realise at all, but when we crossed the line, uh, we became the first team ever to complete the race, which I think is a really lovely thing to have achieved because lots of teams do try and for one reason or another <clears throat> they're unsuccessful but that means a lot to me because it kind of uh, gives testament to the relationship to tom and and myself as a as a cohesive team and you know like you're putting yourself into some dark places during this phase, and we were both there for each other um so i think we're both really really proud of of that fact in particular but equally proud to finish the race but yeah when when we crossed the line we were emotionless because we were so drained
2: yeah
1: given the race literally everything that i could give mentally physically emotionally i'd given it to that race and you know when we crossed the line I, I, was, I was lost. like I was just empty. I, I, all I remember was just being happy that I never had to pull that sled again.
0: For sure. And how annoyed were you at the be bothered phrase by the end of the race? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it undoubtedly helped and got us through. Um, the one key thing that I would pass on to anybody doing the race is that when you, when you think about giving up, do whatever it takes just to get to the next checkpoint and then make your decision there. So physically, if you're able to, and you're not, you know, injured or broken, then do whatever you possibly can to get to that next checkpoint. And at that checkpoint, you'll have one of the most powerful things that we have, which is human interaction. Mm. And I think that was the main difference between the first time when I was solo and with a team is that even though when Tom and I didn't talk that much during the day, having someone there was, it just meant so much. So, When you rock into a checkpoint, you've got a really friendly, happy um, volunteer or race organizer there to welcome you in and, you know, tell you how fabulous you're doing. And, you know, someone just to give you a little bit of love and a bit of, you know, TLC for, for 10 minutes or an hour and it sorts everything out and then you can carry on. So try your best to get to a checkpoint. And then, if you are going to sort of scratch and give up, then do that once you've spent some time at the checkpoint and you've made a decision for sure.
0: Perfect. And I've got to say as well, your first time dropping out—that's remarkable humility, I think—to to go in so almost boisterous and then, but but to not push yourself to permanent damage to actually take a step back and go, you know what, I've made a mistake here. I think that's remarkable humility. So yeah, fair, fair play to you. As there's I- not many people I know who would be able to actually because i don't think about giving up but i I'd, i i know many people would give up <laughs> after starting but actually taking the decision to stop and consider coming back again with, with a bit more prep i don't consider that giving up so yeah i, I think c- going in thinking oh <laughs> i wonder if i'm going to be fifth or sixth or first <laughs> and then and then just choosing to go out i think that's quite good
1: yes yeah, it's, it's an interesting point like I, i'm i am competitive For sure, but I'm I'm equally quite happy to accept defeat, and I'm also quite happy to give up (laughs) if I know that it's the right thing to do, and that translates into mountains. I am very happy to turn around 100 meters from the summit if I know that's the right thing to do, even if I don't want to. But I know it's the right thing to do. So, because my career and my life is is in the mountains and the outdoors. I need my body to be able to work and if I, if I didn't and I perhaps had a more conventional setup where I, I didn't need to be up and physically moving for my job then yeah I probably would have pushed on a little bit more I probably would have done and, and the result might be that I would have gone a little bit further before quitting or maybe make it I don't know but I'm quite happy to Accept defeat and know that I was absolutely schooled by that race, uh, <laughs> and I didn't deserve to do any better than I, than I did. I really didn't. So, and to go back and um put it to bed, if you like, you know, to, to do it again in a in a really lovely way, I think w- was the right way to do it. So yeah, I'm, okay. I'm really happy that we we went back, but I'd never go back and do it again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think, we, I think we could have a separate podcast just talking about the Yukon, uh, I think, but um, uh, moving on, and I think the next question I'm about to say, you may have some examples from the Yukon, actually, but I'm sure you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but I'm interested in breakpoints, uh, specifically if anyone doesn't know of him, there's a guy called Ollie Ollerton, he's one of, these, sort of the SES Who Dares Wins crew, uh, and he's written a book sort of around it, and that's where I got the, the name from, at least, anyway. It's essentially a make or break time where you have to take a deep breath and crack on head first into a challenge. So I'm fascinated to know which moments like these come to mind for you, other than pulling Betty across 430 miles.
1: <laughs> What's interesting with um, what I think Ollie uh, and, and you're you're trying to get at, Versus some of the situations that I can think where this might correlate a little bit mm. is that um, <clears throat> Ollie might be referring to sort of standing there, assessing what's about to happen or the inevitable, taking a deep breath and then going for it. But that's one you're
0: going to go down this route. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's at sea level, and mm. there are no additional risks to what lies ahead, other than potentially breaking a leg or twisting an ankle or or, you know depending on whatever the challenge is that it's it's inevitably if he's an who dares type thing it's going to be a physical hard challenge yes that is that doesn't correlate particularly well to being at high altitude yes I often stand there and survey what I can see and in that moment I'm making a hundred fluid risk assessments that's what I'm doing all the time I'm looking at everything I can see from me, my climbing partners, the weather, the ground conditions, temperature, everything, and making decisions constantly. So yeah, I often pause, take a deep breath and think, right, the next hour is gonna be really hard work, but it's not gonna be, it's not like starting a very hard run for an hour because the switch up isn't as physically different. Um, or I might be entering, say, like on Everest, the icefall, and I say, right, I'm stood right at the edge of it, and I sort of have a good look, take a deep breath, and be like, right, for the next four hours, I need to be really on it. I need to be completely in the zone, very astute to what I can hear. My headphones are out, so I can hear everything, and I'm going to move efficiently and slick and make really good decisions. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think, I think they're different on, on that scale. Does yeah. that make sense?
0: Yes, for, for sure. Yeah. And I was, I was thinking actually, and again, another podcast I I recommend people to listen to is the further, further, faster podcast. And I know that on your interview there, you talk a lot about risk mitigation. So I was wondering how you'd answer it because I know for someone like you, especially when it's your company and it's other people's lives online, (laughs) you spend so much time just eliminating as much risk as you can. So yeah, I was, I was interested to see how, how that would go down. So yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it, it, that can sound all a bit like um, exciting and bravado, sort of playing with other people's lives, but it, it is not like that at all. You, you're exactly correct that as mountaineering instructors we uh, and high-altitude guides, we um, consciously go into these environments that are inherently dangerous. And the aim of the game is to come back complete alive, happy, having had a very positive experience. And you know, 99.99% of the time, that's exactly what we do. So I'd go as far as saying that I never go into any of these environments thinking that there's a realistic chance that I, I might injure myself and I might not come back. Because if that was the case, I just wouldn't do it. Perfect. And I'm trying to apply my years of knowledge and my qualifications and my experience to make really good decisions on behalf of Myself and for the clients that are paying me to do that, and very rarely am I in a situation where they have to make their own decisions about the, the conscious risks that we have. You know, sometimes I, uh, you know, I might pull them in and say, right, this next like 100 meters is a bit of a shoot from this gully that comes down, for example. So we'll go across one at a time, and you know, take a big breath, make sure you're like totally relaxed and then maybe just go a little faster than you would normally and then when you get to the other side we'll have a pause there you know that sort of risk management and I'll you know I'll go first and show them what I mean and then it's up to them to have a look make sure they're happy come across and that'll just be a really short a really short section um, yeah it's it is a lot about uh, managing risks but you and, and certainly when I'm climbing for myself with my friends, and I know some people listening to this might disagree, or people who are, spend a lot of time in big mountains would disagree. My risk tolerance or risk acceptance is different. And some people would say, well, it shouldn't be. But um, what I'm prepared to risk with my own life, and if it's a conscious, if it's a uh, a, a decision between me and my climbing partner and the two of us are happy to do it then we then we might go and do it but it might not be something I'd be prepared to ask my clients to do so I, to me that there are different scales of whilst working and whilst doing my own thing and I think that's a really good thing.
0: Well, I suppose a, a good way to a good quote to back up your perspective there would be you're only as fast as your slowest member so when you are leading a group of course, your tolerance is different to when you're on your own because you know precisely what you can do. But you don't know the true limitations of the people in your group, I suppose. And and if there is someone who's quite novice compared to the rest, you have to kind of go at their pace. So actually, yeah, uh, I, 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 I'd agree with you. When you're on your own, your tolerance does change because you you know what you can do.
1: Another example might be, you know, you're at a high camp and the weather's pretty windy and pretty cold. And, you know, it's your summit push and you know myself and my friend might have the experience to be able to manage ourselves in those sorts of conditions and yeah i could go out and take this group with me and look after myself and do my best to look after them but if the conditions are that severe and they don't quite ha- or they don't have as much experience as i do hence why you know they're part of this bigger group that risk isn't acceptable i shouldn't put them into that mm-hmm. because they don't they might not be able to look after themselves If the conditions are that extreme and that cold, you know, with regards to things like frostbite and and that sort of thing, because everything becomes much harder. So that would be where I'd have to say, look, you know, in my head, I'd be like, right, for this team, these conditions are too, too much. And then we'll postpone a day or two days until they're acceptable for an acceptable risk for me to take this group into.
0: For sure. So you've spoken elsewhere, namely that Further far, further, Faster, that's the second time out of two that I've mucked <laughs> up saying that name, uh, Further Faster podcast about how being in the mountains sorts your head out and helps you think clearly. So how yeah. important is it that people get outdoors and if they wish take to the mountains?
1: Oh, I think it's so important. Even the simple act of leaving your bubble whether that's your house or your office and just going for a walk um allows the opportunity just to clear your mind um fresh air i'm sure there's scientific studies that has a positive impact on you but from a from a mental perspective more and more as i get older uh and more experienced i'm really starting to appreciate just how important that is, and you're exactly correct. One of the things that is so special about spending time in the outdoors in any capacity, but particularly in the mountains for me, is the enormous amount of space it feels like I have in my head. You know, if you go out for a day in the hills, you're out for a whole day, like six hours or seven hours, eight hours. Whereas if you go to the gym or to, to class, you know, spin class or something, that might be really good, but it's a concentrated hour and there's still too much going on in there. But when you've got a huge open space in front of you, hopefully sometimes some beautiful views and there's no agenda, I find that your, your head just has space to breathe and to, to think and almost sort of start filing things and putting them in order uh, and perhaps bringing to the top the things that are most important that you can then think about and then actually things that really aren't that important, you can sort of put them aside. But yeah, it offers some clarity, I think. Um, and I'm really missing that at the moment. Yeah. I've managed. I've been managing to sort of get it, if you like, because I'm very fortunate to live close to a lake. Uh, and it takes me about an hour and a half to walk all the way around it. Or I can just, you know, walk a bit and then come back. And I find water, whether it's the lake or the sea, um... Has an, a, a similar effect as well. Just it's like watching fire. It's better than TV, you know. Yeah. Or watching the water move and the colours change. When all you can hear is the wind or, or the birds and the occasional plane going overhead, it's has a very positive effect on my mental state for sure.
0: And um, I, I think for people like you and I and many listening, um, especially if you can't tell by the name of the podcast, Between the Mountains, I'm a little bit biased to mountains. <laughs> But um, I saw a quote and therefore bought a book I'm just about to read by Victoria Erickson and she I'm not going to try and say it word for word because I will butcher it but uh, to paraphrase she says she loves sand dunes, lakes, the oceans the forests but something about the mountains draws her back so so yeah that walk around the lake's good and the the outdoors is great but I guess for people like you and I and many listening it's just it's not the same as the mountains so
1: well there's something very special about Reaching a summit or or a top uh, a top of somewhere, irrespective of how big it is, because it's it's like goal setting and achieving like you maybe you set out and that was your aim and when once you've done the ten thousand steps or three hours of climbing or half an hour of walking and you reach that definitive point, you can't go any higher, you can't go any further and and that's very rewarding uh, on mm. whatever level it might be and you know where when you translate that into an expedition that's say three weeks or a month and everything you're doing, you're pushing towards this singular moment to reach a summit, you know, you times all those feelings and all that effort by four weeks. And then you stand on the summit for, you know, might be a minute. It's a magical question of like, is it worth it? Or why did you do that? But that's another podcast.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I
0: think, yeah, I, I think we could do a podcast or many on Headspace and mountains as a topic. But, Brilliant. It's yeah. so
1: good. So good. You know, if I spend the day inside in the house doing all sorts of um, admin and computer work and a bit of this and a bit of that, I, I get heavy in my head. I get cluttered and busy and then yeah. I can't really think straight. And I think that's totally normal. Like it, Everyone seems to understand that feeling of... um Tr- like trying to keep your head above water, as it were, <clears throat> yeah, and just just a twenty minute walk can just settle that all down, come back in, bang, straight back into whatever it was you' were doing. It puts
0: problems back into perspective, I think, doesn't it? It's just you, yeah. you feel like this problem is huge, it's massive, and you think, "Oh my God, how am I going to do this?" And you look <laughs> at a big two thousand meter mountain next to you, and you're know, like, that's eh, not that big <laughs> he, he's been no,
1: there for a while because, <laughs> because, you know everything we do. you you don't get the end product immediately, whatever it is, like cooking a meal, like you have to chop it all up, then cook it and then eat it. Like everything has a story to it or a length to it. And it doesn't, you know, whatever it is you're doing, there is no, just nothing just happens immediately. Even if you want to drink, you have to go to the cupboard, get the glass out, close the cupboard, open the tap. There's a whole process to everything. And for me, it's just like the longer that process, i.e., a four week expedition and the months before that the longer that process and the more of my time I've given to something the bigger the rewards perfect it's almost like a simple equation the more that goes in the bigger the reward
0: so um I'd love to do a podcast separately on this next question but you were the mastermind behind facilitating Steve Plain setting the world record for climbing the seven summits you joined him on five of these, and I do, like I say, have so many questions, but what was behind your infamous UK versus Australia game of Connect Four? <laughs> um,
1: well, on, expedition, on the big expeditions, like the big Himalayan stuff, and, and other ones like Akon Kagura and other big trips, you do have a lot of downtime, and we do have designated rest days where we don't really do much other than a bit of personal admin you know a bit of washing and a bit of sorting have a little shower or wet whitewash wash or whatever it might be and then there's always time to kill and it's a really lovely time to find a rock and read a book or just sit and look but one of the one of the simplest games that you know there's always cards there's always yes. cards and that's a great great thing to carry on an expedition is a pack of cards because you can play it with anybody from any country there will be a game that you can work out between you but even easier than that is connect four
2: <laughs> all you have all you have
1: to do is put four in a row and then like point your finger to it and like your thumbs up yeah and then the other person understands that's it so you know it's light and it's small and we take it away so I, I'm reasonably obsessed with Connect Four, and you might say, "Well, isn't it like a kids' game?" And you know, how can you be good at how can you be good at it? But you know, dare I say, I'm pretty good at Connect Four.
0: <laughs> I can count the four quite well.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I can. Um, you know, I must have played tens of thousands of games of Connect Four on on these expeditions, and it was just a fun little thing. You know, you have to bring some normality and a bit of sort of. A bit of a bit of a laugh to all of these trips you know when it's appropriate yeah and playing connect four on the summits with steve was just a really fun thing that was quick and uh made us both laugh a little bit so yeah we, sure. we enjoyed we enjoyed doing that we didn't do it on three of them but we did it on on the rest of them yeah perfect
0: so Many people say, and many cases, show that altitude can affect anyone and anybody, and a recent podcast I've recorded, the gentleman mentioned that him and his son went to Nepal. They're both in really good shape. He's actually a physiotherapist. He is 50 and was fine, and yet his 20-year-old son was really struggling with the altitude and had to go into an oxygen, oxygen tent. You deal really well with altitude. Do you think you take after your grandfather, who came from Shimla in the Himalayas? What
1: a lovely question. I think it's a very romantic idea that I'm very happy to say yes to that <laughs> my, my ancestry um, yeah my ancestry, my great grandfather uh, stems back to sort of the foothills of the Himalaya Um I believe that where they used to often also go on holiday up in the northeast, they, they had good views of Canton Junga because when when we, um, when my grandmother passed away and we went to uh, or my my father went to sort of you know the house to empty bits and bobs, he found some amazing old photos and some pastel drawings of Canton Junger, which I now have framed, which is what I was just looking at. Um, so I've digressed a little bit.
0: No, that's fine. <laughs>
1: I've <laughs> if I've forgotten what
0: the question was. That's <laughs> fine. No. I, I, to be fair, I was thinking no one can see us on video, but you've looked up at those paintings, those pictures you've got. I've looked up at my A zero map of mountains of the earth to, to see roughly where northeast would be when you mentioned it. But um, yeah. but um, yeah, you you awesome. deal really well with altitude, and uh, oh, yes. and do you deal? Do you think that's connected to your grandfather? And yeah, I think it's a romantic idea.
1: Well, I mean it. It is black and white that um, it's to do with your physiology. Mm. You know, the Sherpas have evolved over time and they are undisputedly the best, uh, most advantaged physiologically to acclimatizing on the planet. And obviously they're descendants from the Tibetan plateau, which is, you know, 4,000 meters. So years and years and generations and generations of, of those guys living there, they've evolved to adapt as well as the body physically can. And sure, you know I I haven't, if I'm honest, uh, traced my ancestry back any further than that, and it might well be that for quite a few generations, they lived up in the foothills at a few two or three thousand meters, and yeah, inevitably over time that, that would have would have helped, but I uh, I don't know the answer to the question whether that's helped me, but it's a really lovely idea.
2: Yeah,
0: for sure. I so. Kind of on a similar note, so myself and so many listening will have the passion and plans to climb mountains over six thousand meters. But to date, I've only ever hiked my way to the summits. <laughs> um, so, what are three skills that you, John, would say are mandatory before booking that flight to Kathmandu?
1: Booking the flight to Kathmandu to then go and do a six thousander.
0: Yeah, so go do some some big high altitude stuff. What are three skills that you would say are essential amongst many? I. I I must say (laughs) it's not like Um, can you eat and can you walk
2: but
1: (laughs) straight off the bat I would say that you needed the technical skills to not only safely get yourself up onto the the higher parts of the mountain where in the Himalayas anything at 6,000 meters would be snowy and icy Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and probably glacial as well only perhaps the last day or last two days but you would need to have some experience or some skills with crampons and an ice axe and perhaps roping up across a glacier and they could be easily learnt in a a long weekend in Scottish winter or perhaps on a a week Alpine course. Um, You know, just the basics so that it's not your first time. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So yeah, some technical skills there. Um, I would say an aptitude for learning and listening to your body. And by that, I mean, uh, I found that when you go to altitude and, after, you know, especially after a few days, once you've decluttered your mind and you realize that your days have become incredibly simple and revolve mostly around eating, drinking, walking generally quite slowly and uh, playing Connect Four. Uh, <laughs> and all, all the normal trials and tribulations of everyday life Can be parked for a short period of time. So, an aptitude for learning and listening to your body. So, once you've decluttered all the rest of this, you then become very in tune with your body and how it feels. So, your body will tell you very quickly if it's not quite right, and it will usually tell you what's wrong somehow. You know, if you're too hot, you'll sweat. If you're if you haven't got enough oxygen, you'll you'll either get a headache or you know your heart rate will be going really fast. Your breathing rate will be very quick. Uh, all these sorts of things. Um, and if you're hungry, you want to eat. And so it's not about ignoring that or saying, well, I don't normally have breakfast or I don't normally you know, take lunch at midday. You don't normally spend all day walking in the Himalayas. So you <laughs> have, to, have to come in with an open mind and a bit of a clean slate and say, well, this isn't my normal. Like, I don't normally spend all days outside under the sun. Um, hiking in the Himalayas. So I'm going to come with an open mind uh, and a real hunger and aptitude for learning about how my body feels and talking and listening to other people. So the technical skills to do it, an open mind and an aptitude for learning. And perhaps this might be a bit of a cop-out, but perhaps uh, a strategy for dealing with some of the harder things that may crop up during the trip like be bothered so um you know when it's cold and your extra jacket and your gloves are like in the bottom of your rucksack and you can't be bothered to stop and take your rucksack off and you know get it all out just having having sort of that that single phrase to say be bothered short-term loss long-term gain yeah i'm going to lose a minute of my day or whatever i want to get to the hut as soon as possible i want to get to the camp as soon as possible. But it, you know, it's really important to do that thing so that you don't turn up in a in a worse state. You know, you want to arrive at the end of the day in the best state possible. And actually, one minute here, one minute there during the day to ensure that you're in a in a good state means that you'll you'll inevitably end up getting there quicker anyway.
0: Perfect. And I don't think that's a cop out either. I think that's a good that's a good third point. <laughs> if it's if it's any consolation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's great. Yeah.
0: So even looking back as far as over a decade ago, when you used to be called JCG Expeditions, of which, again, um, this isn't sponsored at all, but I'd like to promote it's now Mountain Expeditions and you can find his website online. (laughs) Um, There you are. Um, Thank you very much. uh, Oh, you're very welcome. JCG Expeditions, uh, you have been summiting big mountains such as Aconcagua, which I think I said almost correctly just then, Island Peak and Anadablam we've just talked about three basic skills but to do those you need to be very skilled anyway what's one thing that you've learned and do differently compared to sort of 11 years ago that you now do today uh
1: well actually that um akon and island peak are sort of reasonably straightforward and sort of High altitude, but sort of entry level high altitude expeditions. Yeah, they're, they're challenging and shouldn't be underestimated. But um, Amadablam, which you mentioned, is an incredibly technical, very difficult and, and challenging high altitude mountains. They're very different. Um, so if we take Amadablam as, a, as the sort of the mountain to answer this question to, what what would I do differently for something like that as opposed to say Aconcagua? <clears throat> Well, the main difference is that when you're in a situation which is substantially more serious is that uh, there is much less leeway for error. You know, on Amadablam, there's continual exposure, which should you fall or unclip or have catastrophic failure within the system, you are going to fall off and die. Full stop. Whereas on uh, Akron for example, you're not ever kind of fall off and die no. you don't use ropes um and that sort of thing um so w- when you then have to apply an extra layer of sort of technical uh, climbing to the high altitude you then need to ensure that every other aspect that you were already doing on the other mountains is refined and tuned to have all the marginal gains possible so you know when you're on a very steep ice face and you know that it's imperative to stay hydrated and you know you're just your lips telling you that you're a little you know you're thirsty one of my absolute like gem top tips is to in invest in uh, a water bottle that's made by a brand called Nalgene um, which are very common they're easy to get in all outdoor shops and you can get sort of fake ones you can get copies but just don't just just buy the original Nalgene because they're the only ones that really work, and the wide top ones as well. While we're at it, but my real top tip is to buy the, to buy a or possibly two of the the smaller ones that are half a liter. So um, you can have that with warm water in it if you want, or squash or whatever, tucked on a in a pocket on the inside of your jacket by your chest, which means that it's not in your bag and it's not out of reach. So the main thing with um, the higher, more technical things is everything becomes that little bit more difficult and you need to be a little bit more bothered. Um, And particularly when you're in a very steep and uh, technical terrain, if it's not convenient to access something, you, you won't do it. So anything that's in your bag, you will not access it. You just won't do it until there's a nice big flat area. And that might not be for like a few hours. So if you want to have a drink, you need to have that on you, like so. A half liter Nalgene down your top in a little pocket is perfect, you know. And snacks, and you need to know exactly which pocket they're in, which zip pulley to pull, and you know maybe you've even gone as far as pre-ripping the wrapper or or taking them out of wrappers completely, so that you don't have to do that with your big mitts on. You know, there's so so many. I wrote a huge article about this. So many miniature small marginal gains that all add up to make a huge difference when you bring your sort of what you're trying to achieve from a uh, a more straightforward expedition like kilimanjaro or Aconcagura up to something much more serious like amadablam or an 8000 or a technical climb
0: and is there anything that? <clears throat> you know you've you've done them in the past so we can at least say that 11 years ago you were very very good at climbing mountains is there anything you do differently or or generally speaking is it just about practicing and just refining those existing techniques just to be better each time
1: anything i'd do differently going forward
0: yeah so if you're Um, going to go back and do those big ones again compared to 11 years ago when you successfully did them anyway is there anything you do differently (laughs)
1: Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time I go into the mountains, I learn something, whether it's refining something even more or finding a little piece. A lot of it comes down to kit and equipment, um, how I can make it even more useful or is there something that does the job slightly better or is it lighter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, every time I go to the hills, I will... I will learn something, whether it's physical, like about my physical ability, and what I can achieve, or, or in a technical aspect, or just from an admin perspective, thinking about how can I make this whole system more efficient, um, and that, that hopefully will never stop. Um, yeah, of course, you know, I, I had to go and learn for myself. I have to go and make mistakes, and I had to fail. And I just think that's the best thing about all of it because it's really, I know this sounds like a really strange thing to say, but it's a little disappointing that when I go into the mountains that I don't have those sort of near close epics anymore. Um, well, I, I might do if I was just with a friend, but you know, when I 99.99% of the time when I'm up in the mountains, especially when I'm working, I, I, I don't have, those um, yeah, those near misses and those close calls, because there is no substitute for experience, mm. and all that learning comes from doing. Uh, and climbing big mountains is is never been it's never more true about learning. It's a real practical thing. You can read about it in the books, and I can sort of tell you all about it. But until you've tried to open zips at eight thousand meters while wearing huge mitts. And then you think, oh, why, why didn't I, why didn't I listen to John and extend all my zips so they're three inches long, with a with a big bit of cord so that I yeah. can gr- grab it between my thumb and my, <laughs> yeah, and get my water, which I did listen to him and I did get that half liter of but I still can't access it because I haven't got the full.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: but that's fine, you know. You could, you might have to just take your glove off for a second, and you'll. You know, and you'll manage it and you'll, you'll you'll be okay, but next time you can mitigate that possible risk of getting frostbite in your fingers because you had to take your mitt off and just not have to do that because you've added that extra little thing in. Or Perfect. sometimes taking it sometimes taking it away because it's something you don't need and it gets in the way.
2: Yeah.
0: Perfect. So talking about success in the last decade, let's briefly talk about Everest. Okay. First question is actually probably not what people expected me to ask, which is more, how does the south and the north route compare to each other? Because the south is the most popular one, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. The south was the, um, the route of the original ascent by Hillary and Tenzing. Um, and that goes from Nepal. And the north side is accessed through Tibet and China. It um, comes up the other side. Uh, it's, they are very different. Um, the key differences from sort of a, a practical perspective is that the north side uh, broadly speaking is uh, slightly is windier and a bit colder and is definitely a lot more sort of mountaineering um, it has a, a lot more terrain i think that is sort of mountaineering and it has it has these infamous First step, second step, and third step, which all happen to be uh, on the summit ridge above sort of 8,300 meters along the top. So the Hillary step sort of pales into insignificance in severity compared to the, the three steps on the north side. So the main key thing from a safety perspective is that the north side is actually objectively much safer, and by that I mean there is no kumbu icefall to to navigate through. And there is no lotsy face where uh, occasionally things can come hurtling down um, where objectively things can come down from above ice or rocks or or bits of equipment um, that might come down and hurt you there's very little objective danger on the north, so it's safer from that perspective um, but historically, if we look at incidents and deaths on the mountain they for for sort of Western climbers going as clients, they they are highly concentrated above the 8,000 meter band, and uh, on the north side, it's a lot more serious. You 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 spend a, a much longer period of time as a whole above 8,000 meters, which as we we know the media. Like to call it the death zone, <laughs>
2: uh, yeah.
1: and on the south side, you you spend much less time within that eight thousand meter band. Um, so yeah, it's they have their pros and cons. I mean, the the rescue services on the south side, on the Nepalese side, are pretty remarkable. They they can long line injured clients uh, or injured climbers, sorry off from around nearly seven and a half thousand meters these days. It's quite incredible. So, you know, with the assistance of some Sherpas or your guides, they could help you down to seven and a half, seven, three, and then you'll be in Kathmandu an hour later receiving world-class treatment. That's that's not to be underestimated. And on the north side, that is not going to happen. At the moment, there is no rescue services from the air on the north side, although I believe that might be changing soon. So you would have to be assisted or get yourself down and it's it's not easy because when you get to advanced base camp it's then like a long way 20 kilometers or so down complex moraine although it's steady it's straightforward it's complex rocky terrain all the way to base camp where you can then get vehicle access so if you had a severe accident on the north side you're a little bit scuppered whereas on the south side you'd be out and into hospital pretty soon so that's a big Thing to take into consideration but the south side probably because of that a mix of the history of it being the first ascent it's uh, warmer and um, generally slightly better weather and the rescue services and dealing with the Nepalese government is substantially easier than the Chinese government <laughs> uh, means that the, ne- the, the south side the Nepalese side is substantially more popular um, and yeah could, could be described as busy Um, whereas the north side is substantially less popular Uh, I think you know on on a sort of popular year you might have 350 nearly 400 paying climbers to go and climb Everest on the south side and you might be looking at around 100 on the north side
0: Okay perfect I've got a follow up question as well with that which I wanted to ask and that is do you know who Alex Honnold is?
1: Yes yeah of course yeah
0: yeah yeah, i was gonna i was gonna say Uh, (laughs) yeah um you know what you might know him (laughs) Um, Uh, i don't no i don't but he um he i was listening to a interview with him and he says when he climbed half dome in yosemite he obviously free soloed it which is i think that's the right phrase if he's listening i'm so sorry if i said the wrong phrase but basically he climbs up with no ropes just a you know chalk and water and goes and um And when he got to the top, he said, it's really odd because no one can see you climbing and you just roll over the top. And then there you are. And some people might be a bit confused, but otherwise people just see a guy sat down with his top off. And um, it it got me the question thinking, with the summit of Everest, when you're coming from the north face, can you just sort of get onto the top and meet them there? And they have no idea that you just came from the north north, uh, side? Or does everyone have to do that Hillary step?
1: I uh, know the um when you come from the north or you come from the south, the first time you meet them is on the summit.
0: <laughs> so you can just rock up and go, "Hey, how you doing?"
1: Yeah. So uh, here's a good one. Uh, in two thousand and seventeen, I was guiding Molly Hughes on the north side of Everest, and we went to the summit on the sixteenth of May. And uh, it's a reasonably small weather window, but but as um. As a very small, strong party, there was myself and Molly and two Sherpas, we looked at the whole situation and decided that we were strong enough to, to give it a go, uh, and we were confident we could make it work. <clears throat> and I was radioing to the south side, where a very good friend of mine, Tim Mosdale, was guiding uh, his clients. And um, I understood that Tim and a really good friend of mine called Scott, who was one of Tim's clients and another, another client, we're also going to try for the 16th and I was just thinking this would just be amazing I've spent months of my life, more, probably more than a year with Tim on Expedition um, how amazing would it be to step up onto the summit from, from the north side at the same time as he did on the south side and uh, we, we radioed a bit and uh, kept in touch and um, as I came over the top, you know we we made, we made really good progress actually that day, and we summited just after sunrise at about four forty five in the morning a m which is a little bit earlier than than most, um, and I, I sort of got to the top and i I looked longingly down like the southwest ridge, thinking, "Please God, this would be fantastic, and there 's no <laughs> one there but from from the summit, you can see where where the if if you know what you're looking at, you can see where the Hillary step would drop away. So during the sort of 40 minutes we were on the summit with Molly, um, I kept sort of glancing over um, and unfortunately nobody came up the south side. Often on the south people aim to reach the summit around seven or 8am, but Tim and Scott are pretty rapid. And actually when we got down and radioed and sort of, um, you know, we. They'd been successful, which was great, and they'd had a really good day. We missed them by about 15, 20 minutes. No. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> we, Molly and I spent, you know, 40 minutes on the summit, uh, and by the, towards the end of that time, you know, it was very much time to start getting, getting going, you know, starting to cool off a little bit. It's not a place you want to spend too much time, but we'd had enough time to soak it all up and enjoy the moment, and then it was, it was time, we were ready to start going down. but you know, they could have been one minute or an hour. I didn't know. I couldn't see them. But that would have been lovely. That would have yeah. been really special. Yeah.
0: So next question, more generally speaking, what's it like?
1: What, standing on the summit? Absolutely. <clears throat> well, I touched on it a little bit earlier about, um for me, sort of the longer the build-up and the sort of the bigger the expedition or the climb, to to a singular goal the the more I get from it and there there aren't any sort of mountain-based expeditions that are longer or bigger than um, climbing Everest it's normally about six weeks or seven weeks and you know for many people that you're talking about a minimum like two or three years often build up possibly 10 possibly a lifetime and then you know there's always threads of doubt And there's always threads of uncertainty, and these are a good thing. Um, And and as you go up and you go through the motions and you do your acclimatization, and you're learning and feeling about your body and getting your logistics in place and working with your Sherpa team and trying to put everything in your favor, there's still doubt and uncertainty. Um, But you're giving a huge proportion of your time You know, it's all encompassing. And then eventually it all starts to get a bit exciting and the gears change up and it's time to make a summit push. So you've done all the hard work and everything's in place and you sort of sit and wait and watch the weather and make a decision and then it's time for a summit push. So you go through the motions that you know so well and you get yourself up to high camp and then that's all that's left between you and the summit is an unknown so you knew everything up to that point um and that and that familiarity really helps that when you go back up the second time or the third time having that familiarity is a huge benefit to you but what lies ahead every step from between you and the summit is uncertain again so you still don't know if you're going to make it or it's going to happen and then yeah you set off into the dark and it's both incredibly exciting incredibly sort of scary from an unknown perspective but you have to trust in the decisions you've made to get there and trust in the weather forecast that you've got and molly had to put her trust in me and and to the sherpas and and into each other to look after each other we were a a cohesive team and you know you go through the motions and i'm constantly making risk assessments and asking molly how she's feeling and sharing my hot chocolate out of my thermos flask and trying to preempt how she's feeling and saying, like, do you need to go to the toilet? Like, let's stop. You know, it's a massive ordeal going for a wee, especially for females on these big mountains. And I kind of just had the feeling that she needed a wee. So I was like, do you need to go to the toilet? She was like, yeah, kind of. I was like, right, it's going to be a faff. Let's do it because short-term loss, long-term gain. You know, it's going to be... Anyway, and then you keep going and eventually, you know, the sun starts coming up and that tells you that you have to be close because we've done all our planning and we know that by the time the sun comes up, we should be within an hour or two hours and it's still uncertainty. You know, it's still doubt. You still don't know if you're going to make it. You still don't know if everything you've done in the last six weeks has been worth it. And then it all often, it all kind of suddenly appears a bit too quick, almost catches you off guard. And I knew how on this particular trip, I knew how special it was for Molly, but I'll go back to the first time I had the opportunity to, to climb Everest in 2013. I was 26 from the south side. Uh, and I went for the summit. I was on an agreement to assist and help Tim with his group. And then when it came to the summit, I was allowed my own sort of chance, if you like, to, to go. So I teamed up with Jabu Sherpa, and we set off into the night. And um, because I'd had you know, a reasonable amount of experience, he, he's, he didn't have to do anything really for me, just look after himself. And it felt like two friends going on a, on a big day together. So, you know, we got to the balcony, changed our bottles. I fed him some Percy pigs and we had a laugh about this and that. And then s- systematically we kind of overtook a few other groups and a few other people and then we were at the front. And it was a perfect night, so we just turned our head torches off uh, and spent the last hour or two um, climbing without our head torches. And actually, we, we'd moved very efficiently and very quickly, and we reached the summit at 10 to 3. It's pitch black. Um, and being bothered, the first thing I did was said, right, let's get a couple of pictures and a little video, anything that has to, like, that I'd really like to do, let's get that done quickly and get it done now. And then once that was done, we just sat down and, and just and then enjoyed the moment. Does that make sense? So yeah. I arrived and I didn't switch off. I was like, right, I had a look around. I was like, OK, I can't step over there because that's really bad, really steep. Get a few pictures together with Jabu. And then we sat down, I got my flask out and we just sort of soaked it all up. Um, it's not that easy to converse when you're wearing oxygen, and also Jabu's English wasn't like fantastic. So we just we just decided to just uh, enjoy the moment and sit there. And I think for 20 minutes or more, we kind of um, just sat there in each other's company on on the top of the summit of Everest uh, and soaked it all up. And it's so difficult to really explain how it felt, but it you know it's a combination of Utter relief, um, sort of a big weight lifting off your shoulders, um, very emotional. Like, I can't recall if I sort of specifically cried as such, but um, it would have been a very emotional moment for sure. But, you know, I'm all, all too aware that summit is optional and getting down is mandatory, as Ed Vista's famously coined. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, And we, and we had to get back, we had to get back down, but I was, I was happy and confident because it was a, a journey that I knew I'd just done it on the way up and I knew exactly what it would be on the way down. So yeah, I guess it, it felt like, um, it felt like a just reward for committing a lot of time and effort to something. And it's incredibly, incredibly special. I remember looking out across and uh, you know the stars are all around you as always but because you're so high some of them seem to appear at a horizontal level so you're looking sort of straight out and potentially almost even down at the stars which is a really remarkable feeling and we, we were graced with a clear crisp and almost windless summit Wow, so it wasn't, wasn't too cold um, it, it was was really just quite perfect um and to be there alone with jabu uh was the perfect way i would have had it some people said oh do you, you know do you not have regrets for you know being there in the dark you didn't get to have any views my first answer was always like well i have to go back and you
2: know,
1: yeah. get the sunrise but no i wouldn't i wouldn't have changed it for the world because it meant that i had it completely to or well, we had it to ourselves mm. uh, and more than that we 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 had a, a really good day. We had n- no surprises, no hiccups, no drama. Uh, and that's how it should be, you know, small teams with lots of experience um, having really special experiences on these, on these big mountains.
0: For sure. Um, just briefly as well, I wanted to have a bit of chat. We spoke on the phone before this, before today, and you mentioned how on Everest you now offer one-to-one after discussing with another guide that one-to-one level of service as far as guiding goes uh so i just wanted to sort of ask what your reasonings and thoughts were behind that just as a general sort of topic overview
1: yeah um you're exactly right the first time i went in 2013 um you know i was eyes on stalks a little bit and sort of like a sponge meeting all these legends for the first time from sort of the himalayan database of legends And I'd not guided on 8,000 or or certainly not on Everest before. So I was just really keen to see how it all worked. And, you know, on my own expeditions with clients, I try to make them the best I possibly can. And I don't always conform to what everyone else is doing. You know, often my teams are a little bit smaller and I may have a slightly higher ratio of guides. Because at the end of the day, I want everybody to come back complete and have a safe and and good experience um but yeah really interestingly like it's a business now whether you like it or hate it it, the guiding side well all guiding amounts is a business but the everest sort of wheel is is a big business um and you'd obviously think that you know if you scale up have more clients you make more money but i didn't get into the outdoors to make money and uh, i don 't think anybody goes becomes a mountaineering instructor or a climbing instructor or a mountain guide to to make lots of money because you won 't um, I got into it because I thought it would just be a, an amazing and fulfilling career to have uh, and yeah speaking to this um, this guide he he 's you know very well known and it, his opinion was that the only true honorable way to to sort of guide this particular mountain was and the best way to do it would be to do it one-to-one to to offer an exquisite service where you know they get your undivided attention uh, as and when required and you know with a small team you can be very flexible and you can be very adaptable and you know if someone's not feeling very well you can quickly shift things around and you can get people down and it has no impact on other people. It's you and your little trip and you can be very responsive. You know, if you wake up and actually the weather's slightly better, you could just decide to change your plans and maybe head up and then have lunch somewhere else and then head down. But more so, you know, to me, if I, if I run a trip and uh, somebody gets frostbite, then I feel like I've, I've failed in, in, as, as the guide in some way and and yes of course i can't i'm not a control freak but I, I want the best for them so inevitably if i have four or five clients on a summit day all married one-to-one with really great experienced competent sherpas i can't be in four places at once however much i can try and move quickly around the hill i can't um and I just think that what I can personally bring and what other experienced high attitude guides can bring to a situation, uh, to an environment that changes so quickly, um, is invaluable, uh, really. And I think I do agree that if, you, if it is something that's on your radar and something you want to do and you want to have a really good experience, you want to increase, massively increase your chances of A, summiting and B, coming back. Complete without any frostbite, then going one to one is undoubtedly the way to do it.
0: For sure. So, just for those listening, uh, I'm noticing we're getting close to the half, one and a half hour uh, point on this. Oh, we really? We are uh, coming up close to some wrap up questions. So, for anyone listening, okay. um, that's a good time frame. Um, the next question I was thinking, I was listening to a podcast uh, which I, I also recommend to people. Uh, called the Amateur Traveller Podcast, and they unusually did a mountain climb episode on Kilimanjaro. And the woman was talking about her, it's her job basically to go up uh, and down and lead people. And she said, it's often the people who go the slowest who are the most successful uh, due to the altitude. So for someone who climbs mountains incredibly quickly and is a part of the Seven Summits World Record, I just wondered what your thoughts were on on that
2: quote.
1: Um. Well, I'd just like to clarify one thing is that um, any time that I've done uh, a speed ascent or climbed a mountain particularly quickly, I'm fully acclimatized when I do that. So I have already gone through the process of acclimatizing. And yeah, um, I, I can now confidently say that I acclimatize well, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm no different than most of the other high altitude guides around the world. We just acclimatise well. But I still have to go through the steps and the processes like everybody else. And then I choose to attempt to, you know some of the faster uh, speed ascents and that sort of thing. And with the Seven Summits World Record, we didn't rush about or climb any of them particularly fast. We, it's just the time frame to complete them all was very very quick so we did one and then straight to the next one and then straight to the next one um so i still need to acclimatize and kilimanjaro as as a subject in itself is very unique it, it breaks a lot of the rules for acclimatizing uh, or the recommended way to acclimatize by that i mean sort of trying not to uh jump where, where you choose to sleep trying not to jump in increments more than 300 meters and then every sort of three days take a rest day that sort of guidance from many uh, people and um, authorities of medical sort of research in high altitude
2: but Kilimanjaro
1: is sort of you can't do that so um, and lots and lots of people climb Kilimanjaro which is which is a great thing because it's such an amazing experience. But yes, I can completely agree that um, when you're breaking the rules and you're ascending to altitude quicker than perhaps is recommended normally, then you have to accentuate the recommended advice. So the recommended advice is to walk slow, keep hydrated, you know, and a few more things. And if you're going to go up to high altitude quickly and break those rules, then you need to, walk even slower and you know etc etc so straight out the gate on Kilimanjaro the pace is like like really slowed down and a lot of people struggle with it at first so I pre-empt this I brief them about it as best I can I'm like embrace it we're in a new world a new environment where we don't need to rush or walk fast you know take photos enjoy the views and just bring it right down and give your body the best chance to adapt and acclimatise. So, yes, the, the, the woman that you're quoting, she'll find that the, the members of her team who choose to walk slow and steady at the back will have the smoothest journey through to the summit with the least amount of altitude-related problems.
0: Perfect. Perfect. It reminds me, actually, that, uh, that taking it slow, uh, your Yukon race, where you said that when the gun goes and they said, right, like, everyone go instead of doing 100 miles an hour, like your first attempt, you stopped and made a cup of tea with your teammates just to slow things down.
1: Oh, genuinely, you know, there's, like, all all the race starts together, the marathon, the 100, the 300. We were right at the back with the rest of the 4.30s. And then uh, when the start gun went off, we let every single person go for about five minutes um, and went and had a quick coffee a shop like just across the road and then set off so there's no hustling and jostling and we just set off at our pace and then that was yeah. that and and actually we you know we caught people up pretty quick because there's a a little bottleneck uh, a couple of miles in where you have to turn off the river and head up a short steep hill and there everyone has to kick into single file so we just saved 10 20 minutes of energy that was all
2: yeah for sure
1: yeah but a different so- mindset and a different approach completely
0: so i've um i've had an idea on how to prepare myself for altitude uh and i wanted to i think we discussed it before but i want to see if i can get a bit more detailed answer on on record (laughs) on recording okay my idea is running so my thinking is that if my body can better process oxygen then when i climb a mountain and there's less of it i'll deal with the altitude a bit better but you are the expert is there any real way to prepare yourself for altitude
1: Um, all of my advice and, um, thoughts come from experience and of course, uh, discussing it with, uh, qualified medical doctors, um, that I meet along the way. And I have a couple of, I'm very fortunate. I have a couple of really good friends who work with the diploma in medicine, um, and a sort of high altitude specialist. But, you know, I'm not, I haven't done any personal research into it. But I would say running is up there is one of the best activities you could do in preparation for going to altitude. So my sort of go-to phrase when people ask about training is that you want to have big lungs and strong legs. Okay, so to me, whenever I make my lungs work hard, it feels like I'm really using them. You know, like when you're really working hard and you're you're your heart rate's really high, your respiration rate's big, you know, you're taking huge breaths in your lungs. It, it might just be my imagination, but like, I, I'm pretty sure that's how you can train and improve your VO2 max is by doing high intensity exercise for pr- prolonged periods of time. And if you have a bigger VO2 max, that means you can take more oxygen into your body. That has to be a good thing. Mm. And obviously strong legs and well-trained Legs means that the physical side of climbing the mountains will, will still be there, but it should be easier um, because you're well trained. And each day's activities, you'll perhaps be able to recover a little quicker because your body is more adapted and used to the training and recovery process over a period of time. So, big lungs and strong legs is what I recommend to people and whether that's road cycling or running or whatever activity it is that you enjoy doing and know that you will do because that's the thing being bothered to actually do the exercise is what is what's important
0: for sure so i've been thinking a lot as well excuse me about people who have all the gear but no idea yeah, we've all heard that phrase um, across any industry they are often the ones who are most vocal about the risks let's say um, how do you feel about others accidentally or not placing their limitations on you so you know when they, someone turns around and says oh no you, you can't do that it's too windy up there oh no you couldn't do that it's minus 50 <clears> in <throat> the okay right um,
1: how do I feel about people telling me I can't do something
0: yeah well whether whether by accident or not
1: yeah no absolutely um if someone has come to conclusion that they want to say that then i then i will always think to myself well why are they saying that and Mm. they're almost always going to be Correct in the reason why, like because it's going to be minus fifty, or because it's winter in Denali, you can't do that. Uh, <laughs> no, no, nobody's ever done that before. Um, so as long as I understand the reason why they're saying I can't, or shouldn't, or wouldn't, then that's fine. But I'll always acknowledge it, and I'll be like, uh, you know, if someone has said to me when I first did the Yukon, like, there's no way you're going to finish the race. You haven't trained. I might have thought about it and gone, oh, maybe. But then I'll also, so within that process, I'll then also think about, does that person have any sort of weight or authority to over what, you know, my opinion? So like if the park ranger who's climbed Denali 45 times just says, this, do not do this, it's never going to happen, then then I'd be incredibly naive to ignore that Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean I can't open a conversation about why and what aspects are particularly worrying him about why I can't go. So I almost use those opportunities as a learning opportunity to see why, but yeah, it happens a lot. Um, And I think deep down people are genuinely just trying to be nice and um, trying for people not to get hurt or, you know, or worse and in winter, you see it see it a lot, um, like in Scotland. You know, it's a really hard environment to work in. And you could look at the forecast, and it might say seventy to eighty mile an hour gusts. You know, maybe a hundred at times on the summits. Uh, category three avalanche, considerable. You know, and you'd think, well, that would be lunacy to go outside. However, if you If you work and qualified and experienced in that environment and you can take all these resources and pull them together you can quite happily deliver a day that is appropriate and safe within those conditions you you just go to aspects that are in the lee of the wind perhaps but aren't um, at risk to the avalanche forecast you obviously probably wouldn't go to the summits or you choose climbs that don't top out where you could either repel the same climb or escape off to the side. And that comes from a lot of time and experience and knowledge. And, you know, if that's all that's missing in their comment, that's absolutely fine. And it might be that it's an opportunity for me to say, well, actually, um, I am going to go ahead and do this. And and if you're interested, here's a couple of reasons why I'm happy to do it. But equally, you, you would have to be happy with those if you chose to go out. And it might be that you're not at the same place. You know, we're not at the same place. Does, does that answer your question?
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I actually quite like that you, that <clears throat> you accidentally or not um, gave some advice on, on how to, to deal with it. Perhaps if, if people are listening and they've got uh, family members or something saying the same thing to them. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, quite like that. Uh, last one before some wrap up questions.
1: All right. Perfect
0: and I was quite interested by this. Do you feel normalised to summits or does the breathtaking beauty still smack your eyeballs every time?
1: Oh, I I definitely still smile to myself when I take those final steps onto summits all the time. My most recent mountaineering and climbing was in Scotland through the winter prior to the coronavirus lockdown that we're currently in. And there was a few very special days where we've climbed all day, reach reach like the top out ridge and then it's a short, short walk climb up to the summit. You know, and you're putting tracks into fresh snow where, you know, people have been before, but obviously not today or not recently. And then, you know, you just smile thinking, God, this is good. You know it's just like it's just the when you when you when your main objective is to climb you know, there's a lot of relief when you, you know, finally clip the chains or, you know, you, you reach the flat bit at the top, you finish the climb. There's a lot of relief that you're out of the serious technical terrain. But the real icing on the cake, it always has been and it always will be for everybody, is just to take those last few steps up onto a summit. It's re- it's really special. It's really good.
0: For sure. And I noted earlier you said that uh, you, you hinted that perhaps if you always did the same uh, we were talking about Kilimanjaro. And because you've done over 30 plus Kilimanjaro's and, um, yeah. and maybe if you're doing it all the time the magic would go so actually I did know earlier that, that you, you kind of hinted at the question I was going to ask which is that perhaps one way you could be normalised is if, if you just did the same mountain every single time but, <laughs> but I'm, glad I'm glad you still enjoy it
1: I mean I never want to resent going in the mountains uh, I never want to not be there um, and I think that that could be possible if I did laps of the same mountain. Like when I turn up to a climb or, or a mountain with with anybody, whether it's a friend or I'm working, I want to be infused and I want to be inspired to be there, so that it's just natural that that um, emanates across to the clients. You know, if they if they can tell that I've done it a hundred times and I don't enjoy being there, then you know, that, they're going to pick up on that so quickly and it, it's that's such it? a shame yeah so I try not to I mean there's so many mountains in the world even just in North Wales where I live but I try not to go back to the same thing time and time again
2: just yeah.
1: so that it, I, I always feel inspired when I'm in the hills
0: perfect um so some wrap-up questions are we ready <laughs> yeah perfect so there are no mountains. Where are you going on holiday?
1: A really remote beach with um, a very simple setup, you know, like bamboo shack type thing. Um, relaxing long days, reading books, swimming in the sea. Yeah, simple beach life. I, I do quite a lot of that um, post big expeditions. And nice. It, it's almost like a transition phase for me from spending such a long, mostly after big Himalayan seasons, I try to stop somewhere and it's like opposite end of the spectrum. It's just quiet time. It's reading books. It's it's not opening my laptop and cracking on with emails. Like I cannot do that. I, I'm mm. not in the right mental state to do that. It's just almost... Uh, Integrating myself back into society again, like a place yeah. I've I have to do. Perfect. Yeah, that, perfect. Right now, that'd be great.
2: Yeah, I know. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and actually, for for those listening, um, next month I've got a podcast on Tonga coming up. And actually, everything you've just described, I think Tonga would be a perfect getaway right now, at that least, especially. Right now. Um, and I'm interested to know. Actually, uh, you've got a fine art degree, so I was wondering if maybe you were gonna go. Oh, I'd go to the Louvre in Paris. Um but um, but no, a beach is also well I think better in my opinion, but
1: yeah, I mean adventure is so deeply ingrained in what I do all the time now that um my immediate answer was some form of adventure, you know I'm, mm. talking, you know, I'm talking about like fires on the beach and staying awake all night to watch the stars, sort of thing yes um but with no like no one there, or maybe a A companion or a friend or a dog or something I don't know um and some good books and some great good music gonna have some good music as well
0: absolutely absolutely um so you're very good at climbing mountains quickly as we've discussed if I asked you to take on one world record what would it be
1: oh um Such a big question. Put me, <laughs> around, put me right on the spot. I don't know. It, it would be it would be an experience that encompassed what I what I would currently piece together as like a perfect um day or multi day in the hills. So it'd be somewhere um somewhere aesthetically stunning. So maybe Himalayan but more remote. Um, and and potentially a, a new a new line an unclimbed line on a face ideally on an unclimbed peak um, with one or two of like my favourite climbing partners um, obviously we'd have really good weather really good snow conditions yeah. Yeah. <laughs> amazing climbing uh, and just one of those um, one of those days or you know sh- trips where things just nicely fall into place and you're safe and successful but yeah probably you're like six and a half seven thousand high enough that it's hard from an altitude perspective but not ridiculous and a beautiful plumb line where every inch you go up is uncertainty you don't know what is above you
0: for sure so something new rather than knocking someone else off the (laughs) chart.
1: Yeah, oh, this is not a world record, is it? Um, well, that would be a world record. By I guess so. I mean...
0: I was taking that as all... a completely legitimate answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be brutally honest, um, the world records that I've been involved with um, aren't mine as such. You know, Steve is now in the Guinness World Record Books for holding the, the world record for competing the Seven Summits. And yeah, I did six of them. Um and I take enormous pride in organizing and facilitating that trip. It was just amazing. And with Molly on Everest, she's you know, what that was setting world records. But there was there was nothing world record for me and I, that and I was in a way I was really pleased about that because with Steve's challenge, a lot of people said to me, you know, why don't you do all seven? You know, why are you just doing six? Uh, And it was a really good question and it's something that we'd thought about. And by eliminating the the fact that I would also get the reward changes the dynamics completely. So um, there would be no incentive or no additional or ulterior incentive for me to push to a summit for any other reason than to get Steve and I to the summit safely and back down. And although I'd like to think that That wouldn't make a a difference on my decision-making. I'm human and I have emotions and um, it could potentially impact my decision-making. And we knew the whole time that Denali was going to be the crux of that project and that there were going to be some really serious um, questions and really serious decisions to make. And I wanted to have complete clarity that there was no reason for me to make a decision other than the right one. So I chose not to do The Seven. Steve's record so I'm not personally I'm not really too fussed about the records um, to myself I don't really sure if, even if I have any but I've been part of them and that's really fun that's you really have
0: excited. the I think is the fastest British ascent of Kilimanjaro
1: oh uh, yeah um, and there
0: was another mountain that, that leaves my head um, you, you climbed them three times in succession and one of them was a record and then there's another one where you got so close I think someone's record was four hours 20 minutes and you did it in four and a half hours
1: um okay yes that is that is true. So
0: you're modest but I'll be happy to correct you.
1: <laughs> no no you're, you're correct but um on the Kilimanjaro one my aim was to just try and do it in a day and mm. then I sub subsuc- I was aware of what the time was but to be honest it's a bit of a tenuous link like first british that's not even like it's not including Scotland Ireland or Wales um because otherwise I wouldn't wouldn't have had that record but i don't think i've publicized that or mentioned it anywhere Mm. so well done for digging that up (laughs) Uh, and the amadablam one which was three in a week um again completely personal and the speed ascent was can i do it in a day or not and then subsequently when i Uh, gave the Himalayan database the information about the trip and about what I'd done. She then emailed back a week later and said, oh, if you're interested, you're the only person who's ever done three in a week, you nutter. And (laughs) um, your speed ascent also is like, you know, the second fastest ever that was been recorded. So hopefully you can see there's a theme there. And yeah, again, with the Yukon, when Tom and I finished, they then told us that actually, if we were interested, we were the first team ever to complete it. I am very proud of the records, but um, they get very little mention in sort of my bios on my website or online because for me it's it's not really about the records. So, it, well, as I've tried to justify just then, they were I was aware of them afterwards.
0: Yeah, but I think for for me looking in on the situation, that's where the beauty of it lies. You didn't wake up and like a, like a first attempt Yukon go. I'm getting the record today. You just did it because you love it and then, oh, whoops.
1: (laughs) Actually, on the the Yukon one, I I probably did think for some stupid reason I could win it or or break (laughs) the record. As we discussed earlier, I was justifiably uh, battered down and set straight.
0: So last question. So your career is far from over, uh, but I ask everyone this. Uh, well, you know, whether they're talking about a week's itinerary in Cornwall or, or not. So um, over your 80 plus expeditions, if you could relive one moment since your first jungle expedition in Belize, chatting to the guides and getting the lowdown on how to make this to your career, what would that be and why?
1: One single moment.
0: Yeah. Good luck.
1: Well, this, <laughs> it, uh, it's quite easy because it might also lead nice. on my nicely to um, discussing Denali, the one singular pivotal moment of my entire career comes down to uh, a decision and a question that Steve and I had on Denali about two hours below the summit, Um, because with that whole project, because of my experience on most of those mountains and knowing Steve and everything else... You know, forgive me. I'm not trying to sound um, arrogant, but we were confident that six of those summits would be fine, including Everest, because I've been there before, and Steve had been to Lhotse, and you know we were confident that all the other six would be fine, but we knew that Denali was the the one that had the potential to scupper the whole project, and yeah, we, we had huge doubt. But anyway when we, we did get a chance to go for the summit and it was a monster monster day it turned into a 20 hour day which for, for Steve and I is, is huge because he's even quicker than I am um, and like we've touched on in this podcast I've, I was making fluid risk assessment decisions all day and the sun was going down and we had a long way to get back to camp and there's this yeah, this crux moment where I basically gave him I kind of knew the answer already but
2: <laughs> I, gave
1: him, I gave him the chance to make a decision about whether he had enough energy and enough drive and enough in the tank to do the next two hours to the summit and the inevitable monster eight hour journey back to camp safely. Um and to be fair to him he took a moment to uh, sort of process what I'd asked him and then sort of said yeah we can do this and in that moment I, I knew that we would um, complete the whole project and inevitably uh, he would set the record but it wasn't just about that, that that moment was almost like a, a pivotal moment in the whole of the last sort of 10-12 years of this continual guiding and learning and gleaning experience and knowledge because i had to apply everything that i had every tool in my toolbox every experience to that mountain and to that situation to get us in that situation and then to hand him the sort of chance to make that final decision it is was, it was an amazing moment really amazing moment
0: wow and i'm super happy you answered straight away as well that's 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 awesome Just, yeah straight away, that, you know exactly what it is
1: this, my since that moment quite a lot has changed with where where i'm personally trying to go now in my career and in the mountains and it almost feel felt like uh the end of a a chapter if you like you know i was 30 31 maybe 30 i think so like almost the end of that decade that chapter was closed and now you know into the 30 to 40s um and what's going to happen in this 10 years. It's a, it's a real sort of uh, poignant moment in in my career so far.
0: Perfect. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Honestly. Pleasure.
1: Thank no, you. it's been, been really great. Thanks thanks,
0: And that's that. I really, really hope you enjoyed the interview. I certainly enjoyed chatting to him keep an eye out for Saturday's upload. We are going to be talking about climbing Denali, the tallest mountain in North America and an incredible experience. He's gone in the summer and also unusually in the winter. So we compare the two. We talk about the routes up the mountain, talk about altitude and a few other topics as well. So I hope you enjoy that. If you would like to come on the show, please do email on btmtravelpod at gmail.com Share the show with your friends if you enjoyed this. And likewise, you can get us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at BTM Travel Pod.